Hi, I'm Jeff Zentner, and this is my fantasy funeral. Imagine you are dead, but you get to design your own funeral. What songs will be played? Who will deliver your eulogy? And where will your remains rest forevermore? This is the scenario presented to my guest today. I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to my fantasy funeral. My guest today is an award-winning author who came to writing in an unexpected way. As a musician working with teenagers in local rock camps, he realized the impact he might have by writing for young adults. His debut novel, The Serpent King, won the William C. Morris Award for first-time authors, and it's in very good company, joining winners like The Hate You Give and the novel that became the film Love, Simon. The author of that book, Becky Albertalli, describes my guest's second novel, Goodbye Days, as a book that will, quote, wreck you, fix you, and most definitely change you. His third novel has just been published, titled Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee, the story of two high school best friends who host a horror film public access television show every weekend. It's a story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things, or as one of the characters describes, the ones who try their hardest to make something beautiful, something great, something that someone will remember and talk about when they're gone. Words written by my guest. He is Jeff Zentner. Hello, Jeff. Hello. I hate to start out with bad news, but I must tell you, we are going to kill you off today and take a look at the funeral you would plan for yourself. Oh, no. Do I get to decide how I die? You'd be thinking about that, unless yeah. you know right off. Well, I, I think I might need to think about it. I, I proposed that and then immediately realized as wait. I got into it, I'm like, wait a minute. I got out on this limb and I, don't, I can't deliver on the, the, the promise of that premise. You can ponder that for a bit. I wanted to begin by asking about that quote I read from your new novel. Uh, in the book, it's spoken by the character Delia, who transforms each weekend into Delilah Darkwood, about creating something that will be remembered after you die, leaving a legacy. That seems to be an important concept for you. It is the most important concept for me. I mean, I, I think fundamentally that's why I create art. It's because... Uh, Humanity has always sought in some form or another uh, a sort of immortality, a sort of eternal existence, and they've sought it through religion, you know, they've sought it through uh, fountains of, of everlasting life where you go and drink the water and live forever. It's, it's a common theme running through humanity. And for me, I seek it through I seek it through art. I seek it through legacy. It's my way of trying to write my name onto the world in some way. Jeff, today you get to choose the five songs that will be played during your funeral. Tell me, what is your first choice? Oh, good. All right. So first we're going to go with Depeche Mode, Enjoy the Silence. So Enjoy the Silence is one of the first songs that I ever truly fell in love with. I kind of fell in love with music as a teenager for the first time. I was pretty indifferent to music before I was probably 12, 13, 14 years old. And Enjoy the Science was one of the first songs I ever loved. I used to uh, watch it on MTV. I grew up in a pretty religious household, and I wasn't allowed to watch MTV. And I became expert at listening for the sound of our garage door opening so I could watch MTV while my parents were gone. And I would hear that garage door open, and I would immediately... 
uh, grab the remote control, I would switch the channel, and I'd do it two so that they couldn't hit last and see that the last channel was MTV. So I was very, very good at it. But my favorite song on MTV and favorite video was Enjoy the Silence. And so I would hold up my tape recorder up to the television and I would actually try to record it off the television uh, because I didn't have the money to even uh, to even get the single. I eventually got the money together for the single. But until then, it was a boombox in front of the TV with cassette tape method. Words like violence break the silence come crashing in. Depeche Mode and Enjoy the Silence from their album, Violator. I do hope you ended up buying the whole album one day. I did. I did. Jeff, your first novel, The Serpent King, looks at the life of a character who grew up in a very religious family. And you've mentioned you you grew up that way. Can you tell me more about the, I guess, the spirituality of your upbringing? Yeah, I mean, I, I had wonderful parents. And they encouraged me to read, and uh, they were very supportive. And I, I wouldn't be a writer today without them. But I, I definitely grew up understanding what it meant to have restrictions on your life. I, I grew up understanding what it meant to uh, live your life according to a, a faith-based code, I guess, if, if you will. Uh, and, and so that's very much a through line in my life is that faith upbringing, that religious upbringing. And it's something that I've had to work out a lot in my life. It's something that I've had to, to think about a lot. It's something I've had to work through a lot. I've had to come to a comfortable place in my life. And writing the book, The Serpent King, where the main character is the son of a Pentecostal snake handling preacher was one of my ways of doing that. I didn't grow up uh, in a Pentecostal snake handling faith, but that sort of faith tradition interests me because it involves such concrete tests of faith where you uh, pass the test of faith or you don't. You pick up the snake, and if you do, you have faith, and if you don't pick up the snake, then you don't have faith. And so that kind of faith tradition where you've got these concrete tests of faith, I thought provided me an interesting way to, to talk about faith and religion. Was this here in Tennessee in what we call the Bible Belt? Uh, that I grew up? It was, it was not in Tennessee, but it was definitely in the Bible Belt. You have spoken in the past about the large number of books you plowed through when you were young. Were libraries and bookstores spaces of solace and comfort for you? They absolutely were. My parents used to take me to the to the public library in our town, and they would leave me with a quarter to, to call them when I got done. They used to try to hang out there with me and say, okay, you go read, and, and when you're done, come get me and we'll go. Well, I could outlast them. I could go for hours and hours and hours. So they eventually said, you know what, we're just going to drop you off. Here's your quarter for the payphone. Nobody's probably going to kidnap you while you're here. You just call us when you're done, and we'll come get you. Um, so that was an important part of my upbringing. I actually worked in bookstores in high school and college. So that was uh, another important part of my book journey. 
Um, interestingly enough, it didn't occur to me until my 30s that writing books was something that people like me could even do. Uh, I had such a respect for books growing up that I imagined the authors of books to be these sort of otherworldly, uh, unattainable sorts of people. And, uh, and because of that, it never even occurred to me for a long time to even try to write books. But what do you think about being such a voracious reader helped you when you began writing? It was something you distorted in you for years and years? Yeah, what, what I found when I started writing is that I had stories saved up in me for such a time as I began to write. And I didn't even realize it. You know, I was, I was just kind of storing them up, saving them up. I was saving characters. I was saving tropes. I was saving um, character dynamics, uh, relationships, plot lines, all of those things. I was saving them up. They were kind of brewing and marinating in me. They were coming out during my 20s and early 30s through songs that I would write. I was a musician actively in my 20s and 30s, like many here in Nashville. But yeah, doing all that reading, you create, uh, I guess, a sort of account within you. And uh, you can spend down from that account as you write your books. Now that I'm on my fourth book, I've spent down a lot of that account. And I have to go out and find ways to make my life bigger again in the way that reading does. So, of course, I still try to read a lot, try to experience and observe a lot. Jeff, the second song you've chosen is predominantly instrumental and I believe has served as the soundtrack for many of your own writing sessions. Tell me about that song. That is correct. So the second song I picked is called Cold Front by the band Hammock. Hammock is actually a Nashville band, as I understand it. They are uh, considered, I think, a post-rock band like Explosions in the Sky. And I happened upon them purely by happenstance. I read a uh, a review in the Nashville scene of their new video, and I just watched their new video, their their video for Cold Front, and it was this gorgeous kind of impressionistic, abstract um, story, I guess you could say, with kind of surreal imagery, and the music was absolutely gorgeous. I really uh, fell in love with it, and to me, it just embodies this sort of uh, beautiful melancholy. It feels like. It feels like loss and redemption and rebirth and renewal and mourning and all of those sorts of things. song Cold Front from the album Departure Songs. Jeff, as you mentioned, writing and playing music was something you did for a long time. You were in a band called Creech Holler that specialized in murder ballad type songs. Is that fair to say? Yeah, uh, we were, uh, we considered ourselves a Southern Gothic band. We loved uh, 
Southern American roots music, Appalachian music, blues, Delta blues, North Mississippi blues. Those were our primary influences. And we did a lot of songs in the, in the Appalachian murder ballad vein, both originals, and we covered a lot of old Appalachian ballads like Pretty Polly and Wild Bill Jones and, and those sorts of songs. And you also volunteered at teen rock camps in Nashville quite a bit. Was there something about both writing songs and also witnessing teenagers learn to play guitar and drums for the first time that prepared you for writing complete novels? Oh, 100%. I mean... So I write young adult novels, and that is a decision purely inspired by my falling in love with young adults as I volunteered at these camps, and I saw the the energy and the vitality they brought to the art that they loved, the way that they would allow the art that they loved to interweave itself into their identity and become such an intrinsic part of who they were. And it made me want to make art for young adults more than anything. But of course, by the time I came to that realization, I was about 35. And so there was no way I was going to be making music for young adults. And plus, you know, I knew, I knew songs like Pretty Polly. I didn't know the kind of songs that young adults listen to. So there was no way I was going to be able to reach the audience I wanted to reach with the art that I knew how to make. So I had to, to switch gears and when I did that, the most logical place to go was was books, because that was the only other art form that I knew. And the publishing industry is so much uh, more forgiving of my advanced age of, uh, of 30s when I started writing. Toni Morrison published her first book when she was 39, I think. So you don't need to get your foot in the door before age 30 like you sort of do with music. I'm very curious. Are there rules for young adult fiction for instance, how far do you feel you are allowed to go with certain themes or with language? There are no limits in terms of language, in terms of themes. Uh, obviously, if you go to certain places with your language and themes, you'll have a harder time getting into school libraries than, than others. Uh, that's, that's always a trade-off that you're going to have to make, and school libraries are a great place to sell books. Um, the hard and fast rule, though, is that the book has to be told from the perspective of a young adult. And it can't be a young adult in retrospect. So a Wonder Years sort of thing where Kevin is narrating his young adulthood in retrospect, you can't do that. It has to be from the perspective of somebody who is at that time a young adult. That is the one rule, hard and fast, of the young adult category. Jeff, tell me about the third song you have chosen. All right. So we've got here uh, Julian Baker, Claws in Your Back. Julian is uh, a Tennessee native. I believe she grew up in Memphis. I believe she grew up in a, in a strict religious tradition like I did. So, so I read about Julian Baker, and her story mirrors so eerily the story of my main character in The Serpent King, Dill, who is a uh, very talented musician, very talented songwriter, and he grows up in this strict religious tradition. Uh, this is this is amazing. One of Dill's favorite things to do is to watch trains in his hometown. So this feels very planned. I don't yes. know if y'all will be able to hear this train whistle if they're edited out, but uh, I'm loving we'll this. We'll make sure it's in there. Oh, good, good. So, so this song by Julian Baker is from her second album, uh, it's an absolutely gorgeous song. One thing I like to do to get inspiration to write is go on long walks at night. And I would go on long walks at night and just listen to this song on repeat and just weep with the beauty of this song. Collecting the circles, tell us how we are. 
Julian Baker and Claws in Your Back from her album Turn Out the Lights. Jeff, one night three years ago, you were watching television, uncharacteristically flipping channels as no one does anymore, and you landed on something that gave you an idea for what would become your third and newest novel. What did you see that night? So, so I get home one night, it's a Saturday night, and uh, I, I've got a Netflix queue a mile long, I've got an HBO Now queue, I've got an Amazon Prime queue, I've got a Hulu queue, I've got all of them, they're all a mile long, they're filled with things that I need to watch. But instead I get home this night and I start flipping through channels, just channel surfing, a thing I never do. And I end up on the Nashville Public Access Art Station, NECAT. So uh, for anyone listening who who doesn't have the pleasure, who's never had the pleasure of seeing NECAT, it is the place to go to if you love seeing uh, songwriters in the round and songwriter interview shows and uh, performances of the Bolshoi Ballet and black and white and black and white Shostakovich performances. But on this night, they were showing this very grainy horror movie well, what I assumed was a horror movie from the music. It had that kind of theremin, synthy uh, music um, that looked to be from the early 1970s. It had a very Texas Chainsaw Massacre look about it, but even more low rent, which made it all the more terrifying. So I keep watching, and it appears to be this zombie movie. And so I'm like, what is going on with Kneecat? So it cuts to these two girls on what is clearly a very low-rent public access stage, and they're dressed in kind of goth uh, vampire attire, kind of Elvira-ish. One goes by the name Marlena Midnight, one goes by the name Robin Graves, and it turns out that this is a show called Midnight Mausoleum, and it's syndicated uh, from, I believe, Davenport, Iowa, and they're syndicated all over the nation on public access stations, and they were doing, you know, in interstitials in the movie, they, they were doing goofy skits and reading viewer mail and telling cheesy jokes, and uh, I just absolutely loved it. The whole thing had this kind of shaggy DIY sort of feel. These two girls were clearly having the time of their lives. They weren't polished television performers. They were just doing a labor of love, and I kind of kind of fell in love with the whole idea of it, that here they are, I'm sitting in my living room in Nashville, Tennessee, watching this labor of love. They're putting something out there. It's not, um, it's not an amazing piece of art, you know, it's not a polished piece of television, but it's so heartfelt and sweet and goofy, and I absolutely loved it. And so uh, I kind of fell in fascination with these characters and wanted to get to know them. And the way I get to know the people who fascinate me is by writing them as my characters. I imagine when you are creating a literary world and you need pop culture references, you try to draw from things that really exist, but you do have the license to create whatever you need to. The films that are broadcast during Rain and Delilah's show, while their titles might appear to be unbelievable, as far as I can tell, they do actually exist, correct? They do, in fact, exist. The The first movie uh, that I reference in Rain and Delilah is called Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. That's the movie that they were playing on the night I discovered Midnight Mausoleum. And it is a zombie movie directed by the person who directed A Christmas Story. So very early in his career, he directed this very kind of bizarre uh, student filmish looking zombie movie and it's it's fantastic it's I mean it's cheesy it's horrible the special effects are horrible but uh, but you see the the makings of a really great filmmaker behind it 
did you go on to watch other such films to try to get the best uh, ideas or titles or did you pick them strictly from there's there's two that deal with werewolves that are pretty great yeah i got those also from midnight mausoleum i let them curate the movies for uh, midnight matinee Jeff, the book is dedicated to your wife, your son, and also a woman named Jessie Zazu, who for many years fronted a Nashville group called Those Darlings. Tragically, Jessie died in 2017 after fighting a long battle with cancer. What about her life and her death resonates with you? One of the things that I took away from this teen rock camp was the very unique and beautiful energy that arises when young women create things together, when they come together, when they collaborate. Um, So I also volunteered at Southern Girls Rock Camp, and there's just such a wonderful spirit and energy there. And I wanted to capture that spirit and energy in a book. And that's what Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee is, is is two girls coming together to create something. And and Jessie really embodied that spirit throughout her life. She had this restless creative energy uh, she was the kind of person who I, I kind of watched her life from afar. We were we were friends, but she was, you know, so busy and, and I was busy. And so we were never, you know, the kind of people who would talk for hours and hours a night. But we were friends. And I kind of watched her, her life and trajectory from afar and, and really just admired it. I admired her creative spirit. I admired her, her courage. And I would just imagine, wow, I wonder what she's going to be doing in 40 years. And unfortunately, we'll never know. Um, But I wanted to dedicate this book to her because she embodied that creative spirit that I wanted to talk about in Rain and Delilah's Midnight Matinee. Tell me about the fourth song you've chosen. Okay, so this is the song Tether by Churches. There hasn't been a band, I think, since The Cure that so perfectly captured this dark pop, romanticism, this kind of doomed romanticism where you're listening to, to, to something um, that sounds both both joyous and dark that you want to dance to and you also want to cry to. Uh, and this song, Tether in particular, I listened to a lot when I was writing The Serpent King. Um, oftentimes the lyrics of songs that I obsess over when I'm writing don't have anything to do in particular with what I'm writing. It's more just the mood of the song and what it evokes. This song does both. It's both the mood of the song and the lyrics uh, are both very evocative to me. The themes in this song are very evocative to me. They're things that I think about a lot. It's a story that I keep trying to tell again and again. They say, uh, authors sometimes say that they're trying to tell the same story over and over. They're always sort of reaching for something. And I feel like that's true of me. I feel like I'm telling the same story over and over in different ways. And I'm comfortable with that. And it's the story that's embodied in this song, Tether.
Churches and their song Tether from the album The Bones of What You Believe. Jeff, you famously wrote your early works on your phone while riding the bus to and from work each day, which tells me you are at the very least a proponent of public transportation. Is this a practice you still adhere to? Absolutely. Um, I, I ride the bus every day from from my my home in West Nashville to downtown Nashville, where my my day job office is. It, it's it's pure free time. Riding the bus is pure free time. You the, you're a captive audience. There's nowhere you can go. You're just stuck there. Um, but you don't have to be behind the wheel of a car, so you can read or you can nap or you can um, do as I do and and write books on your phone. Um, what I like about it is you have a set amount of time to get some work done. The time you get on the bus to the time you get off the bus, that's your time to write, and you've got to make the most of it. So I like working under those time constraints. I really need them. Uh, and as far as using my phone, I actually tried to switch to a little uh, notebook with a keyboard. It didn't take because what I found I was doing was was getting out my phone and checking the internet and things like that when I was when I was supposed to be working. So I have to tie up my phone with the writing, otherwise I go and procrastinate using my phone. It's very wise. How well are the plots and endings worked out ahead of time? Do you always know where the characters are going when you start writing? I do. Uh, I'm I'm not somebody who plots out every single point, but I know the major plot beats. I know A, B, C, D of the you know of the rising action. I know kind of the climax, more or less, of the story. I know more or less how the story's going to end. Now the improvisation and the the I guess magic of surprise happens between point A and point B. And that's where I kind of riff a little bit and figure things out. But as far as how the book ends, I do know how that's going to happen. And that comes in handy. For example, when I was writing Reign of Delilah, uh, I wrote the first half of the book and then I just ran into a wall, just brutal writer's block. So I said, you know what? I'm not getting any younger. I'm going to die someday. I got to finish this book. So I go to the end and I write the final scene. And then I write the second to last scene and the third to last scene and fourth. And I work backwards until I meet the book back in the middle. So I, I back my way into finishing the book. So uh, so it is helpful I for me to know where the book is going before I make that journey. In Midnight Matinee, two characters, Jesmine and Carver, are mentioned a few times in passing, and they are, in fact, prominent characters in your previous novel, Goodbye Days. This narrative crossover of characters from one book popping up in later books, is that something that appealed to you from the beginning of writing? It absolutely is. Uh... I, and I got it from Stephen King. I loved seeing little references to his other books in his books. Uh, and to me, it's such a nice payoff as a reader to see that investment in a world, in a fictional universe, paid off in other ways. I really enjoy that. I'm working on my fourth book now, and there are some uh, really fun Easter eggs. They're, they're fun for me to write. I think uh, the feedback I've gotten from readers is they're fun to read. They're They're damn sure fun to write. I really love to pull out an old friend, an old character, dust them off and say, Let, let's, let's give them an encore. Let's, let's, let's do another go around. Well, taking that one step further, you may have heard that trilogies are really hot right now. Does writing a series of books about the same characters interest you at all? Or do you feel like you might get bored? I, I don't think it's that I'd get bored. I just don't think in terms of series. I think in terms of single, complete 
discrete stories. For me, for example, I, I've, I have a lot of friends who write trilogies, and I don't know how they do it. I don't know how you write the second book of a trilogy where you're putting all the time and effort into writing a book, but it is neither a beginning of a story nor an end of the story. To me, it's just, it's terrifying to think about. Like, I want to reset the clock every time I go to put out a book and have a new start each time. But with trilogies, there's so much pressure. I mean, you've got to get people in with that first book, because if you don't, the second and the third books don't really matter because nobody cares. So do I see myself writing a series? It's hard to, it's hard to say. I never say never, because if you asked me 10 years ago if I would be writing books at all, I would have said no. So I never say never to anything. I I know better than that at this point. My life is too unpredictable to say. But at this point, uh, no, no plans. Before we hear your final song choice, have you thought about the person or people you would choose to deliver your eulogy? Yes, I have. All right. So you told me that I could go uh, fictional characters. So uh, I, I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm gonna do a split eulogy, and I'm going to have Kyle Chandler as Coach Eric Taylor from Friday Night Lights in full "We All Fall" mode from the pilot of Friday Night Lights. If you've never seen the first episode of Friday Night Lights, it is maybe the most moving hour of television you will ever watch in your life. And there's a speech that he gives in this first episode, in this pilot episode, that I call the We All Fall speech. I cannot watch that episode without crying, cannot get through that speech without crying. I can't believe that I'm able to talk about it on a microphone right now without crying. I'm managing, uh, but but I would love for him to deliver the first half of the eulogy. Then he's going to tag team in Edward James Olmos as uh, Admiral Bill Adama from Battlestar Galactica, and he's going to deliver the second half of the eulogy. And is there anything special you would like for them to read? I would like one or more of them to read Jack Gilbert's poem, Seen from Above. Shall I go ahead and read it? Read it for us, All right. Jack Gilbert, Seen from Above. In the end, Hannibal walked out of his city, saying the Romans wanted only him. Why should his soldiers make love to their swords? He walked out alone, a small figure in a great field, his elephants dead at the bottom of the Alps' crevices. So might we go to our Roman death in triumph. Our love is of marble and large tawny roses in the endless harvests of our defeat. We have slept with death all our lives. It will grind out its graceless victory, but we can limp in triumph over the cold intervening sand. Jeff, we've come to your fifth and final funeral song. What is it? It's the song Wild by Beach House. This song, Wild, to me, sounds like a spirit leaving a body. It sounds free. It is is beautiful. And uh, for lack of a better term, Wild, it is a very aptly named song. It, it, It is so free and beautiful to me.
Beach House and Wild from their album Bloom, Jeff Zentner's final fantasy song choice. Jeff, I believe you have chosen cremation for how your body is handled after you die. Why that preference over a burial? Well, that was the best way uh, that that my ashes could be scattered at at the the place I've chosen. Now, if it were possible to just roll my body in there and that wouldn't be terribly distressing, then that would be fine too. I mainly just uh, wanted to come to rest in in a beautiful place of my choosing, and I think ashes are generally the most appropriate way to do that. But but uh, you know, cut my body up into little uh, bite-sized chunks. I hey, whatever. I I don't mind. It doesn't need to be cremation necessarily. But uh, should I tell you where I want yes, what to it, come to my final rest? Where's the spot you would like your body chopped up or ashes scattered? Sure, sure. So I live about a half hour away from the Narrows of the Harpeth. And there is a big horseshoe bend in the Harpeth where you can put in a kayak and go all the way around the bend. It takes about an hour and a half. You go all the way around the bend and you pull out about a quarter of a mile from where you put in. So you can just hike back that quarter mile. It t- it's really quick and get your car and go back and get your kayak. And so you can go kayaking alone, which is really unusual to be able to do. Normally you need two people and two cars and it's this whole deal and this whole production. But you basically go on this kayak track. And so when I'm able, I go kayaking at least once a week. And it is such a meditative and beautiful activity. I love being on the river so, so much. And um, it's where I'd love to rest finally. Well, this has been very wonderful. Thank you very much, Jeff Sintner, for taking us through your fantasy funeral. I have never had more fun talking about my own death. My Fantasy Funeral is brought to you by We Own This Town. Full versions of the songs chosen today can be heard on our Spotify playlist. Find out more at myfantasyfuneral.show. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening.